Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at GodSolutionShow.com. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers to humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Grant Percet. How you doing, Nate? I'm doing great. It's good to see you again, Grant. We're in the studio, and today we wanted to talk a little bit about the comprehensive case for our faith. Grant, why is a comprehensive case for our faith so important? Well, I think people get lost in the details. I think sometimes they know a Bible verse here, uh, an issue there, Jesus died on the cross, but I think we need a comprehensive case for what we believe and why we believe it. And the best facts, I think, accomplishes that. Yeah, and I mean, that's the whole point of the best facts. We're going to go through that acronym together here on the show today. I've done it in the past, I think before moving to Albuquerque, but Grant and I are in the middle of putting a workbook together where each of you listeners are going to be able to get well-versed in the arguments for our faith. That'll be available by the end of the summer. We can't wait. We're also going to be doing a conference. Absolutely. I'm excited about Colorado. If you like Colorado and the weather and maybe some, maybe some fishing, Jesus had fishermen, so there's <laughs> going to be fishing up there. There's going to be apologetics. There's going to be a great fellowship time. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah, August 4th through the 5th. And uh, we'll be going through some of these same arguments. So just to start getting you familiar with this comprehensive case, we thought today we'd take a few minutes and go over the best facts argument. So the best facts, I'm going to just summarize it real briefly, and then Grant and I will unpack it for you. This is a way to share your faith and the evidence for it with someone in a very short amount of time. So a lot of times if someone says, why do you believe? I talked with a young lady yesterday, and this kind of thing happened to her last week, and she didn't know how to respond. She was absolutely stunned, and she approached me, and she kind of felt very uh, embarrassed, but also this like this agony of doubt mm. kind of hitting her for the mm. first time. I don't know why. I don't know how to defend it. So maybe a lot of times people, when they hear a question like that, their natural response is just, some random uh, data point, some random tidbit that they heard somewhere. It's not a comprehensive case. And like Grant said, a comprehensive case is important. So if someone comes to me and says, Nate, why are you a Christian? What's your evidence? I would say something like this. Well, first, I believe that God exists. There are a lot of arguments for God's existence. A few of them really stick out as important. Uh, Number one, the beginning of the universe and life really points to a God. Number two, the engineering and the design of this universe does as well. Number three, the standards in morality that we all know are true. We all know certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And the fact that there are standards of right and wrong point to a standard outside of ourselves that judges right and wrong, points to God. And then finally, great evidence for God is the truth about Jesus. We as Christians believe that Jesus was God in human flesh and that he had power over death. And the fact that history proves that is evidence that God walked among us. Now, why should we believe the Bible? I believe that we have great reasons for believing the Bible. Well, first of all, the Bible's prophetic. It foretells the future, and it really prophesied a whole lot about Jesus that came true in his life. Number two, it's archaeologically accurate. The archaeology in the Bible is unbelievable. 
It's also coherent. It agrees internally with itself. It agrees with reality, and it's contradiction-free. It is translated correctly. You hear the telephone accusation all the time. You can't trust it because it's changed over time. And then finally, science in the Bible. Well, that alone doesn't prove the Bible. The fact that it's there is evidence of God's fingerprints on his word, and I think it adds to the comprehensive case. So that's just a real short description of the best facts, and uh, we're going to unpack that today. Hey, Nate, I have an example um, or an analogy that I really like to think of when I get in a conversation with people, and it's kind of like this. I think you can picture. Have you ever been on a teeter-totter? You know what a teeter-totter yeah, is? Have you ever had my kids all the time. <laughs> have you ever had someone get off too fast uh -huh. and then you fall? Well, when I'm talking to someone, let's say, uh, just for example, let's say they don't believe in God or they have taken the atheistic position. Picture a teeter-totter with a bucket of stones weighing down one side. That is the person that believes there is no God. There's no scientific evidence for the Bible. Maybe Jesus didn't exist. Now, we're going to talk about how those things aren't true, and that's not good evidence, but those are the type of thoughts and arguments that are like stones in that bucket weighing down that side of the teeter-totter. And I think when we get in the conversation, we can't just expect to put one stone in the Christianity bucket or the Jesus bucket and expect it to offset the other bucket to weigh it down. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I think we have to have a cumulative case, and I think we need to be able to put a bunch of stones in the other bucket and take stones out so that the person can change their mind in a reasonable way. And that's what the strength of the best facts method is, is you're not just giving one piece of evidence or one argument. You're talking about the beginning of the universe, the engineering of the universe. And I believe those act as many stones to weigh down the other side. What do you think of that analogy? I absolutely agree. You know, I talk to people all the time and they say, well, I don't want to accept that. Well, let's go on to the next one. <laughs> right, right. And so you want to work with them on this. And you don't have to get bogged down yeah. in one argument. Exactly. You can give them the argument, and if they accept it, good, there's a stone. If they don't, okay, there for your consideration, and move on to the next. There was a guy I spoke with last year, and he went round and round with me on the cosmological argument, which mm. I think is one of the strongest out there. Me too. I couldn't figure out why it was uh, so difficult for him to grasp it and then we got to the engineering argument and same thing man he just went round and round on it and then we get to the moral argument and guess what he said that's clear as day that's it man <laughs> there you go and so right then and there he said i'm in i'm all in all right so you you need to have this comprehensive case well we don't have all day so before we jump into these and we're going to just spend a brief time on each one i want to remind you first peter three fifteen says to do apologetics with gentleness and respect. Now, this series of arguments is a powerful defense of the Christian faith. But if you just blaze ahead and nail somebody over the head with it, it might not be convincing. Not because it lacks the evidence, but because you could potentially come across as not respectful. So I want to warn you about that right from the start. Share the evidence, but do it respectfully Thinking of the other person as someone that needs Jesus, not just as someone that you're trying to beat in an argument. Totally agree. And one way that I do that is I use the word if. Mm. I think that's a powerful word. And so when I'm talking about evidence I've read about, when I'm talking about scholars I've read or other people or other information, I tell the person, you know, I'm just Grant. You just met me right now. 
if this is true, then wouldn't that make you consider Christianity more? And I think that's just a respectful way to, to let the person decide for themselves. Clearly. Yeah, it's a great approach. All right, so let's jump into the best facts. We don't have a ton of time. But Grant, what do you think is so powerful about the B and the best facts, the beginning of the universe and life, but specifically the beginning of the universe, what philosophers have called the cosmological argument? Well, this is, I think, the most amazing point. And you mentioned it before about I think there's a strong case for this argument. And that is the idea that the cosmos, the whole universe, came into existence at one specific point. That is the dominant view of modern cosmology. And I brush over that statement really quick sometimes, and I think that that is one of the most powerful arguments we can tell people, is just inform them. Did you know that modern cosmology teaches that there was nothing? No laws, there was no gravity, there was no Kepler's laws, no Newton's laws, nothing. No laws of physics at all. There was nothing physical, and at some point, everything literally banged into existence. Now, scientists, atheistic scientists have sometimes says, well, that's for the priests and poets to figure out whatever came before that. But I'm saying, no, 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 that's for you and me to decide. That is a sign that I believe there is a creator. Now, this argument, specifically called the cosmological argument, isn't necessarily a direct argument for Christ or Christianity. But once you understand that there was nothing, no, there was no space, no time, no matter, and you realize that something that has a beginning needed a cause— Everything had a beginning, had needed a cause. Then you realize that whatever caused the universe must be spaceless, must be timeless, must be extremely powerful, and I would argue has to be personal. Why personal? Because impersonal forces don't make decisions to create. So I believe this argument is super powerful and useful because it talks to a spaceless, timeless, powerful, personal creator. And that starts to sound like the biblical God. Absolutely. So again, these first four arguments, there are many more, but we have to stick to four. They describe why we believe God exists. And that is a powerful one. You can phrase the Kalam cosmological argument like this. Anything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe had a cause. And of course, that cause had to be self-existent, mm -hmm. timeless, all-powerful, etc., etc., etc. All the different definitions of the God we see in the Bible. Right, right. The E in best facts is the engineering of the universe. You could describe this argument like this. The design that we see in the universe is either a product of chance, necessity, or design. It is not a product of chance. We know that because there is no statistical reason that any of this should have happened. We know it's not a product of necessity because the laws that create natural necessity weren't even created yet. Right. And so the only option left is that this universe and all the incredible intricacy that you see is a product of design. It's another compelling argument but I like how this appeals to the intuition as well. It's intuitive. When we look at the universe, we realize we were created. 
Absolutely. I think that's a fantastic point. And I think that the simple analogy is you see a builder, looks like someone built it. And I think my favorite analogy is I'm walking down uh, on the beach and I see a sports car and my friend says, that just evolved there. Really? Yeah, the tires in the, with the, in the right place, the windshield wiper fluid, everything right. And I say, you know what? I'll believe it evolved there. But I just don't believe that that sports car got together with another sports car and had a baby sports car. <laughs> so next we have a very compelling argument. You know, I just have to backtrack a little bit. The first argument, the cosmological argument, it had its origins as far back as Plato and Aristotle. Mm -hmm. And even modern intellectuals have come to believe in God's existence through this argument. I'll mention one, and that's Einstein. I don't believe Einstein became a Christian. You hear a lot of times that he became a Christian, et cetera, et cetera. I don't believe that. But he did vehemently try to disprove a cosmological beginning with his famous cosmological constant, which he later called the biggest mistake of his career. But this argument... The beginning of the universe has been compelling to very, very bright people. The second argument, the design argument, convinced the world's most notorious atheist, Antony Flew, that God mm, existed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so those two arguments aren't weak arguments, and neither is this third one, standards and morality. This is the argument that convinced C.S. Lewis right, of right. God's existence and Francis Collins, probably one of the most remarkable scientists of our lifetimes. And it goes like this. Uh, if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective moral values and duties do exist, therefore God exists. Now, Dawkins and other atheists would uh, have to admit that if there is no standard outside of ourselves, that anything goes. Atoms and molecules don't have morals. Rape is no different than charity and giving money away to poor people. But we know that's not the case. Right. We know that there's a right and there's a wrong, and that knowledge, that conviction, points to a standard outside of ourselves. Absolutely. And kind of a, another point to that is the existence of evil. If somebody set, uses evil against God, the shocking truth, I think, is that evil actually proves God. Now, how is that possible? If somebody says there is evil and judges something as bad, they have to literally have a measuring stick to decide what makes something evil or what makes something good. And my question is, what measuring stick? Where do they get that measuring stick from? It can't just be the individual. If we all just decide our own truth, then everything is just opinion. Now we're just debating what the best flavor of ice cream is, whether it's vanilla or mint chocolate chip. It just doesn't matter. The measuring stick can't be the culture or we would never be able to judge a culture as wrong for doing ethnic cleansing or the Holocaust or, or the gulags of Stalin. So that measuring stick, if there is evil, there has to be good. If evil, then good. If good, then God. If there's any standard underneath that judges evil, it wouldn't hold up. It can't be the individual. It can't be the culture. It needs to be God. And that's where somebody like Frank Turk would say the atheist that mm. uses evil as an accusation against God has to steal from God exactly. to make their case. Exactly. Exactly. Great. <laughs> God point. has to exist for them to try and refute God's existence. <laughs> that's a great point. That's okay, a great Grant, point. I'm going to take the next one because I know you don't want to talk about it at all, right? That's the, right. That's the right. historical evidence wait for a the minute, resurrection. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I like that one. I like that one. <laughs> okay. 
So this argument is the argument better known as the minimal facts argument. And this argument is, I think, very strong once you get it. It takes a couple minutes to get it, but once you get it, it's very powerful. It basically says that there are certain historical facts rooted in history. The idea, and I'll just mention a couple. Dr. Gary Habermas really is the proponent that started this, and he has 12 of them. I'm not going to go over all 12, but let me just let you get a feel for this. It basically says that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion, that he lived and died by crucifixion, that he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and that the tomb was found empty, and that the disciples believed they encountered Jesus after he rose from the dead, and that they were willing to suffer and in many cases die for their faith. Also, the church persecutor Paul who used to kill Christians, converted to be a Christian. And also, I think another good, good point is that the brother of Jesus, James, who was a skeptic during his lifetime, converted. Now, the basic question of this argument is, what can we say about history that would explain all of these facts? Okay, We know Jesus lived. We know he was crucified. We know the tomb was empty. We know the disciples converted. We know Paul converted. James converted. What can explain this? And as an example, the most academic approach to this is that they all hallucinated. They all hallucinated that they just saw this. But that doesn't explain the missing body, and it doesn't explain reality. We know that there are no cases of multiple hallucination. We also know that hallucination is a single scope thing. You either hear something or see something. And we know that the 12 occurrences where Jesus was witnessed after his resurrection, they saw him, they heard him, they were invited to touch the wounds, they interacted with him. This doesn't make any sense, and it's not reasonable to say hallucination is a good explanation. Another theory is that the disciples stole the body. This might explain the, the empty tomb, but it doesn't explain why all these disciples would die for a lie. So the most reasonable explanation is that Jesus rose from the dead. The other explanations, these alternative explanations, don't make sense when it comes to explaining the facts. And the idea that Jesus rose from the dead is only something you're going to reject if you decide that there is no such thing as miracles. If you're committed to a presuppositional materialism, a naturalistic worldview, the idea that miracles cannot exist, if you're committed to that, then of course you're not going to accept the resurrection. But that's the question. These are historical facts, and when you look at it, the most reasonable explanation is Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then he probably is who he says he was, God. And Christianity is both probable and likely. And that is compelling evidence for God's existence. You know, we believe Jesus was God in human flesh, and the historical evidence for what he did, and particularly his power over death, is evidence of that. All right, so the best part of the best facts, the beginning of the universe, the engineering of the universe, standards and morality, and the truth about Jesus. Next, we'll get into the facts and why we can believe in the Bible. But before we do that, I want to let you know, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution, and we are talking about the comprehensive case for our Christian faith. Now we're going to look at the FACTS acronym, why we can trust the Bible. And it starts with prophecy. The Bible foretells the future. 
You know, it's been calculated that there's somewhere in the range of a thousand prophecies in Scripture, and some of those are quite accurate. You know, Daniel prophesies 500 years of Israel's history, including the rise of Alexander the Great, who he said before it happened would be the first king of Greece and things like that. Amazingly accurate. Uh, we read in Isaiah about Cyrus 150 years before he was born, but we see right in Isaiah his name and what he would do, how he would return God's people back to their land. All of this happened 150 years later. We see in Ezekiel a prophecy that many have, have concluded puts the exact year of Israel's rebirth as a nation at 1948. We'll get into that in the future on the show. Not today, but at a different time. There are many prophecies throughout God's word. But probably most interesting to me are the messianic prophecies. We see about 100 messianic prophecies in Scripture. You may have heard that there are over 300. A lot of people quote that number, but a couple hundred of those are vague. They may or may not be relating to Jesus. But there are a good number, maybe 100 or so, that are actually accurate and not just vague, like where he would be born, Bethlehem, how he would die, that he'd be crucified, that he'd be pierced for our transgressions, right? how he would uh, do his ministry, that he'd work miracles, that he would even rise from the dead. Now, nobody could conceivably fake that, right? If you see in Isaiah 53 that he's going to see his life prolonged right. after his death, you can't come up with how they could fabricate that. And of course, Jesus himself prophesied his resurrection. Uh, so all this is pretty fascinating. The Bible foretells the future, and that's evidence of God's fingerprints on his word. Right, and so I was just thinking of the 30 pieces of silver, but I'm getting excited to go Zechariah on. To, I was going to cut you off and go into archaeology because I'm excited about the interview we did with, with Craig, but let me, let me leave you here. <laughs> yeah, about the 30 pieces. Right. Yeah, Zechariah 11 talks about the 30 pieces of silver that they betrayed God for, a great evidence for Christ's deity. Mm -hmm. uh, Zechariah 12 then says, They'll look on me whom they have pierced. Incredible, mm -hmm. incredible. So the archaeological accuracy of the Bible. Okay, so a couple weeks ago, we got to interview Dr. Craig um, Evans, and he called you about discovering cave number 12 at Qumran. And it's another cave that was discovered, but the big deal with the Qumran caves that people don't realize is in cave one, they discovered a full manuscript of Isaiah. So Nate, you mentioned Isaiah, you mentioned the prophecies in there, you mentioned Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. The earliest manuscript we had from Isaiah that was full was from 1000 AD, okay? So critics could come along and say, well, you doctored the manuscript, somebody put the, ma the prophecies in there, they did some work. Well, the discovery of Isaiah in cave number one, we're talking 1947 to early 1950s when these first 11 caves were discovered. And in cave number one, this manuscript of Isaiah dates to 150 to 200 B.C. 150 to 200 B.C. And I want people to understand this is a thousand years, well over a thousand years earlier than any manuscript we have of Isaiah. So why is that important? Number one, it shows us that the transmission of Isaiah was very, very accurate, but also 
the prophecies of Jesus, specifically Isaiah 53, hands and feet being pierced, could not have been doctored because we found the manuscripts in cave number one of Isaiah that were dated before anything we ever had before Jesus was ever born. You know, and there is evidence that the Old Testament manuscripts were doctored after the fact to disprove Christ. So that Masoretic text from 1000 AD in Psalm 22:16, it changed and had a different wording than the Septuagint Greek translation had. The Septuagint Greek said, they have pierced my hands and my feet. Another prophetic reference to Christ's crucifixion written a thousand years before Christ. The Masoretic, of course, preserved by those that rejected Christ, went on to change that to a like, like lions, they have pierced my hands and my feet. But the Dead Sea Scrolls, having uh, the, the going back a thousand years before the Masoretic, but being in Hebrew, mm-hmm. had the same wording as the Septuagint. They have pierced my hands and my feet. And uh, they didn't write that out. And we can know this, this archaeological find confirmed the accuracy of Scripture, like you said, right. but also the prophecy of Jesus on multiple counts. Absolutely. This is just one of just hundreds of finds in archaeology. Another one, and I won't go into it, but I'll just throw it out there. We're living in the same town as Dr. Stephen Collins, who discovered Sodom. I'll leave that for later. I know a lot of people don't realize it, but there's all kinds of archaeological discoveries that validate the Bible. And we're going to get him back on. Just to tell you a few archaeological items, this last year they found the bula of Ahimaaz, one of Solomon's deputies. They have Hezekiah's bula. They have two of Baruch's bulai. Those are in question right now, so the, the jury is still out on those. Hezekiah's tunnel... Um, Uzziah's death and burial plate, uh, Jezebel's seal. I mean, we could go on and on and on and on. The Pontius Pilate inscription. There's, the archaeological evidence for Scripture is unreal. You know, I like the reality that the Bible is coherent. It corresponds with reality. It's coherent internally, and it doesn't have contradictions. I'll just leave it at this. The contradictions that are often accused of Scripture can be easily cleared up with a little investigation. Absolutely. And then moving on to the T, the Bible has been translated correctly, as I mentioned, that copy of Isaiah. But also you've had um, Dr. Wallace on here that talks about the incredible finds of the Bible. And I just want to talk about one briefly. The telephone game analogy is false. The analogy that's more correct of the way the manuscripts came about for the New Testament is more like a newspaper. Multiple copies in multiple areas, multiple lines of copies that can be compared. And the, the evidence for the New Testament is incredible. Some of the old writings of Socrates live on literally one manuscript that dated a thousand years after the writing. And I'm not dramatizing. Literally a thousand years after the events, one manuscript exists. Most people don't know that it, with the New Testament, we have well over 5,800 copies, well over 5,800 New Testament copies, not full, of course, but pieces that validate the Bible is accurate. And we're discovering more and more every year. Some of those are going to be released this fall, some mm-hmm. of the earliest manuscripts ever. And additionally, you have 85,000 quotes of that material from the early church fathers. <laughs> the, yeah. the case is overwhelming for the authenticity of, of the documents that we have. 
Okay, finally, I like this a lot, but science. There's incredible science in the Bible. The beginning of the universe, a finite time ago, I mean, physics and and uh, astronomy only caught up with this 60, 70 years ago. Right. Uh, the, the bendable nature of light, the spherical shape of the earth, the general relativity actually is in mm. Scripture too. Mm. Psalm 90, verse 4, a thousand years are like a day, mm-hmm. like a watch in the mm-hmm. night. It gives three different ways of seeing time. Gerald Schroeder talked about that on our show. You could go on and on and on. The, the second law of thermodynamics and entropy and many more. But all of this points to the coherence of Scripture and the validity of our faith in God. So let's just recap it. Best facts, B, the beginning of the universe, E, the engineering of the universe, S, standards and morality, and T, the truth about Jesus. All that points to God. And then the facts, the Bible foretells the future. It's archaeologically accurate. It's contradiction-free. It's translated correctly. And it's scientifically accurate. All those things point to the reliability of the Bible. Now, if an atheist were to say, you can't believe because of, uh, what about other religions? We could use the TALL acronym, and if we wanted to refute evolution and materialistic naturalism, we could use the TALES acronym. We reject other religions because they are theologically incoherent. They make ambiguous truth claims. They lack evidence, and they lack power to change lives. And we can reject evolutionary naturalism because the transitionary evidence is lacking. The apparatus or mechanism of evolution is insufficient. Life doesn't come from non-life. The existence of information and design is inexplicable naturally, and so is the start of the universe. Now, if you're just listening and you're thinking, wow, that's a comprehensive case for Christianity, I implore you, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, put your faith in him right now. Say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Please come into my life as Savior and Lord. Grant, any closing words? Well, there's a difference between knowing and showing, and many of us have had an experience where Jesus uh, came into our lives, but a lot of times others don't understand that, and so being able to show it with rational reason and evidence I think is very, very helpful. If you need some more info, go to thebestfacts.com, and definitely go to godsolutionshow.com to get this interview and all of our past shows. Like we always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at godsolutionshow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.